I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. Folks, these are, these are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Reformanda Radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you when men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Semper Reformanda Radio. My name is Tim, and well, my name is Tim Shaughnessy, and I'm here with the other Tim, Tim Kaufman. Today, we are going to uh, be talking about uh, something to do with Roman Catholicism, and I believe the topic is uh, the Roman Roman Catholics and relics. Is that right, Tim? Yes, we're going to talk about venerating relics and the Roman Catholic arguments for the antiquity of the practice. And uh, we'll talk about when it actually originated. Awesome. Well, let me uh, let me just remind everybody that we are part of the Bible Thumping Wing Network. Um, so before we get into it, let me just go ahead and play that commercial. And then I also want to uh, uh, play the commercial from Track Planet. Go ahead and check them out. And... Uh, we will we'll be back in just a few minutes. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Harmonetics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick answers good evening and welcome to the conversations from the port welcome ladies and gentlemen to the bible thumping wingnut podcast the bible thumping wingnut network 10 podcasts one network check them out bible thumping wingnut.com looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach look no further at TrackPlanet.com, we have solid, biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new track just for you. We are committed to the solid, biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. 
That's TRACTplanet.com, coupon code BTWN. All right, we are back. And so, Tim, I, I've noticed that you've uh, been pretty active on the blog. You are putting together, I, I just want to draw attention to this real quickly. You are putting together blog articles from our series on Mother Mary. Yes, that's correct. When we prepare uh, a podcast, we put together all of our show notes. And when we're talking about something like the veneration of Mary, under her different attributes and titles, uh, like the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption and the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it's important to have all the historical data together. And uh, But when you're listening to a podcast, it's, it's easy to digest the information, but very difficult to recall it. And so we thought we'd put together all the data that went into those podcasts so people can look at the evidence for themselves. I think that's very helpful because that way they can, they can actually take your notes. So these... These articles have Tim Kaufman's notes, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> uh, whenever I record with Tim Kaufman, he's uh, he's you know it's he's the one who does uh, does all the research and all the all the work. So we're very grateful to have him on the podcast. But you're you're getting to look at his notes, so I think it it's it's awesome because you can listen to the podcast and follow along with him as he's going through his own notes and they are extensive they're detailed and uh and they're very thorough and uh it's it's a huge blessing so tim why don't we just jump into today's topic i'm going to give the floor to you uh you're the one who put together all these uh notes and uh i'm i'm i have the benefit of of going through it with you but i've not added anything to what you've what you've uh, already put together so why don't we just get started? Okay. Well, uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks again for uh, for arranging for this. I'm glad to, always happy to co-host with you. And um, this is a uh, uh, this is a slightly different topic than the ones we have covered uh, regarding Mary. The uh, but this has to do with the veneration of relics, and as we noted when we were talking about the different attributes of Mary, that uh, there was no real sense that Mary was sinless until you get to the end of the fourth century. Um, there's no real sense that Mary is the Ark of the uh, New Covenant until you get to the end of the fourth century. There's no sense that Mary, uh, Mary's virginity, her physical virginity was preserved in childbirth until you get to the end of the fourth century. And we find that repeatedly in all these different doctrines and practices of Roman Catholicism that are alleged to be apostolic. When you do the research, and even Roman Catholics acknowledge this, when you do the research, you find that there's not a lot of really solid evidence for their beliefs until you get to the latter part of the fourth century. And typically what they do is they'll say, if, if you will just spot us those first three centuries, we'll take it from there and prove that these doctrines and teachings must be apostolic. And the purpose for these podcasts, when we talk about these things, is to equip our listeners so that they don't have to take the Roman Catholic arguments lying down. The fact is, so many of the doctrines and practices and teachings of what we now understand to be Roman Catholicism originated not with the apostles, but in the latter part of the fourth century. And relics and relic veneration is one of those. 
and this one is a pretty interesting topic because uh, Roman Catholics will say that the veneration of relics is one of the few that they can trace all the way back to the scriptures, which is an interesting confession on its on its face. But when we evaluate the data, what we'll find is the actual practice of venerating relics originates in the latter part of the fourth century, just like all the other practices. Like when we did our series on the sacrifice of the mass, the sacrifice of the mass originated in the latter part of the fourth century. So uh, I, I thought we'd start today. Let's um, let's just re read a news article. It's pretty old, but it's going to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Um, this is from the Washington Post um, back in 1999, and it's uh, it's just a story. It's just a human interest story about a church in Largo, Maryland, that was exposing the relics of some martyrs um, who had died, oh, around 200 AD. And this is the article. It says, uh, uh, the remains, the pebble-sized remains of these uh, martyrs uh, were venerated at two recent evening services at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Largo, Maryland. As parishioners stood and sang, when the saints go marching in and the knights of columbus in full regalia shouted the relics i'm sorry saluted the relics on satin pillows were escorted into the church tonight we give glory to god we are all called to be god's saints the reverend michael king said as deacon leon bichette read the gospel of luke and urged the worshipers to present your bodies as a living sacrifice Small children sang, oh, taste and see what the Lord has done. And people lined up and kissed some of the relics. Okay, so that's that's uh, that's an article from 1999 called The Parish's Relics Include African Saints. A human interest story in the religious section of the Washington Post back in 1999. But the reason I mention that is to Roman Catholics, this is actually not an unusual occurrence. But to Protestants, it looks weird and it sounds weird. So they, they take pieces of martyrs, their bones, and carry them on satin pillows. The Knights of Columbus salute. The priest says we're giving glory to God. And people uh, line up to kiss these bones. And Roman Catholics will say, well, the, uh, the veneration of relics uh, is something that can be dated to apostolic times and earlier. And so the Protestants are weird for not venerating relics. And so uh, they, they'll, they'll make the case that uh, this is something that's normal. It was taught at the earliest days of Christianity, and Protestants have rebelled against apostolic teaching by not venerating relics. So let's let's talk about relics. Um, the um, Let me just ask you, Tim, uh, you were raised Roman Catholic. Did you ever venerate relics or go to a reliquary? and and see all the different uh, all the different uh, saints' dead bones uh, displayed. No, I uh, I never saw any dead bones or um, anything like that. But um, you know, I didn't have time to read through all of your notes. But I'm um, I'm wondering if I I was I was raised um, as a Roman Catholic um, up until about my teenage years and. 
a lot of the stuff now that I'm I'm learning more about it and I'm looking back and thinking, oh, okay, so that's what that was. But um, we we had all those statues, and I remember a statue of Mother Mary being given to a family member, and I remember thinking this was bizarre because he he, he was very excited about the family receiving this this uh, statue of Mother Mary, and I remember him kissing the statue, and uh, so I'm wondering if that falls into the same category as to what you're talking about, but I never saw any uh, any dead bones or anything like that. Well, it's a it's it's in a similar category because uh, the kissing objects as a sign of adoration and veneration is pretty standard in Roman Catholicism. Kissing the cross or kissing a relic of the cross or kissing a relic of uh, of a martyr it's a uh, it's pretty pretty standard stuff in Roman Catholicism. Um, I, I think that people were kissing things long before the latter part of the fourth century. But the real question is, when did we start digging up dead people? And kissing them, and that's what we're going to get to. But let's—I uh, thought we should start with what a relic is, and the the, the basic Roman Catholic teaching on relics, and the Roman Catholic practice of veneration and how it manifests. So, so we're going to start with just the Latin term relicus, just means remains or remaining, and so when somebody dies and their body decomposes, all that remains is just some bones and teeth and possibly some hair. And so those are the remains or the relics of that person. So um, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, relic veneration is the veneration of some object, notably part of the body or clothes, remaining as a memorial of a departed saint. And it's very important to start with that because one, it's the official Roman Catholic definition, but also because it's the remains of a departed saint. And what we're going to find as Roman Catholics try to justify modern relic veneration, they're going to appeal to some scripture passages where the clothing of a living person was was held in high esteem. And they're going to say, see, that's relic veneration. But but relic means remains. The official definition is the, the, uh, is the remaining is a memorial of a departed saint. And so uh, we're going to get to Paul's handkerchief and Peter's shadow and say, uh, hey, those guys weren't departed yet, so those don't qualify as remains. But, uh, but what we want to get to is uh, the official Roman Catholic teaching on the veneration of relics and the condemnation of people who reject relic veneration. And so for that, uh, you can always find some condemnations in the Council of Trent. And uh, in the 25th session of the Council of Trent is... Um, in the 16th century, is that you find uh, affirmations of relic veneration, that is the, the pieces of bodies of martyrs, dead people, uh, and other dead people, um, and also a condemnation of those who reject it. And this is from the 25th session of the Council of Trent. It says, uh, the holy bodies of holy martyrs and of others now living with Christ are to be venerated by the faithful, through which many benefits are bestowed by God on men. Okay, so that's the affirmation, is that you are to venerate the remains of dead people. Uh, they who affirm that veneration and honor are not due to the relics of saints, or that these and other sa uh, sacred monuments are uselessly honored by the faithful, and that the places dedicated to the memories of the saints are in vain visited with the view of obtaining their aid, 
are wholly to be condemned as the church has already long since condemned and now condemns again. So basically, uh, they're, they're basically saying, hey, if uh, the people who are, are holy died and you need to take their the remains of their bodies and they, they basically put parts of them in altars. And so we're going to find as we read a little bit more that uh, Roman Catholic altars tend to have the relic of a saint somewhere embedded in the altar. Um, they'll be exposed on the altar sometimes in what's called a reliquary. It'll, it's just a little box or container that contains or displays the little piece of bone chip or something that is allegedly from a saint and it'll be exposed on the altar. Or uh, when I was young, I visited a relic room in uh, Still River, Massachusetts, and it was a room about, it was about 20 by 20, 20 feet by 20 feet, and it's just wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling, relics everywhere. Uh, and they're just little cases with a relic of a certain saint, uh, or allegedly a saint, uh, a little piece of their bone is in a tiny little case, and it's just wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling. And that's a, that's a lot of dead, that's a lot of bones. And, uh, little pieces. I mean, it could be anything. It could be a, a tooth, a fingernail, uh, an eyelash, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, anything that was related to a saint, they would say, this is uh, a relic from that saint. Well, let, let me ask you a quick question. Um, it sounds to me like they break up the body and then, you know, ship it out to different parishes and ship it out to – is that right? They, yep, that's that's exactly what like, they do. You, you might get a toe, and the the guys down the street might get a finger, and um, wow, that's I, I didn't know that they did that. I I, I thought they would have tried to. Um, I I know very little about this this particular subject dealing with Roman Catholicism, but I I thought that they would have tried to uh, keep the bodies intact, but I guess I guess not. Well, some of them they do, and you'll find some. Some uh, some churches, the bodies of dead saints are are actually displayed in state under the altar. And uh, I have visited churches that actually have a, a body of a dead person under the altar. And of course, it's been preserved in some way. They, they say they call them the incorruptibles. They say, "Wow, they're so holy; their body didn't even corrupt in the grave." And right. yet, <laughs> yet, when you look at it really closely, there's uh, right. you know they're, it's they're obviously not in very good shape, but you know, now now that um, just listening to you now that now that I'm thinking about it, I do remember one time seeing a, a fabric or a cloth, and as a kid, and and I just remember being told that this was something that was belong that that it was it was an article of clothing that belonged to somebody, I, and I have no idea who it was, but I do remember uh, I I do remember people making a big deal about it. I don't remember if I saw anybody kissing it. Well, that's that's a good that's a good uh, segue into our next section, which is to talk about the different classes of relics. Because what you just described, I think, is probably a third class relic or a second class relic. And uh, a first class relic is actually a part of the saint's body. And uh, let me tell you that uh, if a church were to receive the big toe of a saint, it would be considered a huge honor because normally you get <laughs> a, a much smaller part of a saint. You'd get I mean, just a tiny fragment of a bone chip, really. Uh, it'd be unusual to get a hand, for example, or a thumb. Uh, you'd get some very, some, a much, much smaller part. Uh, but say um, a first-class relic is a part of the saint's body, and this is, is placed in an altar stone or placed in a, a relic uh, 
display case. Uh, a second class relic is what you were just describing is a piece of the saint's clothing or something used by the saint. And then a third class object is an object which has been touched to a first class relic. So uh, they might actually have something, uh, maybe I, it, it's, it's difficult to categorize some of these, like a chair that was used by uh, a saint might be a third class relic or possibly uh, a second class because it was used by the saint, but also was touched by the saint. So uh, what it, it just depends. And I've seen them categorized in different ways, but there's three basic categories. And I, I imagine that they probably have pretty blurry lines between some of these, but a first class is for sure a piece of a body of a saint. And, uh, and, and what, what, we, what we do to, well, not what, what we do, what Roman Catholics do is what was described in the news article that we read at the beginning of the podcast, which is they'll get in a line, they'll go forward and pay some respect to this saint. But it's, it's a respect that's not the normal uh, respect that's paid to the dead, for example. Like we, uh, you know, we don't sneak into a mortuary at night and put bodies in funny, uh, funny positions and, and take pictures of them and send them out on Facebook. That's illegal. And it would be wrong. You don't do that. And so in some way, we all show some respect to the dead. And we are careful at their funerals. We don't say terrible things about them. Uh, but that's not relic veneration. That's just respecting the, the dead. And, and it's not unusual to do that. It's not unusual to care for a dead body respectfully until it's placed in the grave. Uh, what we'll find as we go through this discussion on relics is that Roman Catholics will find cases in the scripture where a dead person's body was treated respectfully. And they'll say, see, that's relic veneration. But, but what's missing is anybody lining up to kiss the dead body, <laughs> you know? So, so what we read at the beginning of the article was this, uh, the people at the Roman Catholic church were lining up to kiss the piece of uh, bone that ostensibly came from this saint from the second or third century, allegedly a martyr. So, uh, so that, that leads us to the ways that relics are venerated. We've already discussed one, which is kissing. Um, another way is to incense them. And uh, you were raised, because your family uh, was so interested in that uh, Latin mass and the Tridentine mass, my guess is you probably attended uh, church services where the priest would get out uh, something called a thurible with uh it's connected to a chain and it would have incense burning inside it and you would swing it toward the altar yes and, and that would release some smoke and so you'd have this incense that's released at the altar but one of the ways that, that uh, relics are venerated is by incensing them and this is i'm reading from the roman catholic general instructions of the roman missal which basically is how to conduct a mass and it says that relics of the saints exposed for public veneration are incensed with two swings of the thurible. There's some things get three swings, uh, but uh, that is they, 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 they swing the chain toward it once and twice and it releases the smoke, but sometimes the altar I think it's uh, three swings, but uh, the relics get two swings of the thurible. So that's one way that uh, relics are venerated in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, another way is uh, burning candles before them. And um, you could go to various Roman Catholic web pages, and I just found an example where, you know, a web page says it's a pious custom to keep lamps uh, burning before altars and images of saints and before their relics. So they, they light candles or they burn an oil lamp or something. 
in order to venerate a relic. Um, another way is to either bow or to make a profound bow. Uh, a bow is you just lean forward. A profound bow is when you make a bow all the way down to your waist. Uh, but uh, this is from the ceremonial for the use of the Catholic churches in the United States of America, sixth edition. Uh, this was actually from 1890, but it's basically about high mass. And high mass is the highest, most formal mass that a, a Roman Catholic priest conducts. And it says, if the relic of the saint whose festival is celebrated is placed in the middle of the altar, the celebrant, that is the priest, incenses it with two swings, bowing to it before the altar. So he, he, he incenses it, and then he bows down to it. And then in another section on the high mass, it says, if the priest passes before the high altar, where there is a relic of a saint whose feast is celebrated or some other remarkable relic, he makes a low bow. That is a profound bow, bowing very, very low. So, so uh, and then finally, we've talked about kissing, but we'll also talk about kneeling. And this is from another Catholic apologetic page. It just says, uh, when venerating a relic, it is most appropriate to show honor and respect to the saint by performing a simple exterior gesture. Some venerating a saint's relics can kiss or touch the glass case that houses the relic. Other acceptable gestures include signing oneself with the sign of the cross or kneeling in front of the relic in prayer. Okay, so so this is how this is how a relic is venerated in the Roman Catholic Church: incense, candles, bowing kneeling and kissing okay or you know, or making the sign of the cross or whatever but uh the uh but you understand that these are the the bowing and the kneeling is what we typically associate with adoration uh, incense and candles we just don't do anymore uh the uh, kissing uh not uh, i know that we're supposed to greet one another with a holy kiss but i don't think the scriptures can you know tell us to kiss a dead person Although there is a story of a prophet in the Old Testament who, who brought a boy back to life by uh, putting his hands to his hands and his mouth to his mouth, but that's certainly an exceptional case, and it, uh, it it's not it, it doesn't prove that we should kiss relics. But in, in in any case, the the way Roman Catholics would would venerate a piece of a dead person is to incense it or burn candles in front of it or bow or kneel or kiss that relic. Now. And that, that's it's important to understand that part of it because this is what they mean by veneration. And uh, what I what I want to read now is that the, this is from the Catholic Encyclopedia on relics, and and this is the point where they say, hey, a lot of other stuff it's hard to, for us to trace back that far, but but this one we can trace all the way back to the scriptures. And, and there's two interesting points I want to make about the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia's entry on relics. First, it says, few points of faith can be more satisfactorily traced back to the earliest ages of Christianity than the veneration of relics. From the Catholic standpoint, there was no extravagance or abuse in this cult, as it was recommended and indeed taken for granted by writers like Augustine, Ambrose, Jerome, Gregory of Nyssa, Chrysostom, Gregory of Nazianzen, and by all the other great doctors without exception. So what, what I want to first point out is how interesting it is that they say, oh yes, this can be traced all the way back to the early days of Christianity, 
and here's all these people that endorse it. Well, every person that they listed is from the latter part of the fourth century. But that's interesting. Now we'll get into some of the evidence that they provide, but there's another section in this entry on relics that I thought was very interesting, is that they say it's not easy to figure out when this started, but they give an example and they say, neither is it quite easy to determine the period at which the practice of venerating minute fragments of bone or cloth, small parcels of dust, etc., first became common. We can only say that it was widespread early in the fourth century and that dated inscriptions upon blocks of stone, which were probably altar slabs, afford evidence upon the point which is quite conclusive. Okay, so they're saying we can at least show that early in the fourth century this was widespread. But what's interesting <laughs> is that the example they give as evidence that this was widespread in the early fourth century is from a slab of stone that's dated to 359 AD. That's the latter part of the fourth century. That's not early fourth century, that's the latter part of the fourth century. And, and what we'll find as we proceed through the means of veneration that they don't even have evidence of the means of veneration, much less just the veneration itself. And by means of veneration, I mean the kissing and the kneeling and the, and the bowing and the incense. And, and we'll get to that in just a second. But, but this is something that Roman Catholics think goes all the way back to the apostles and earlier. And they will rest on that and say, see, this, this is just evidence that you need to be Roman Catholic. And we're going to look at some people a little bit later in the podcast, look at the testimony of some people who converted to Roman Catholicism, in part because they finally accepted that, wow, relic veneration of the early church looks a lot like Roman Catholicism, so I guess I'll just have to become Roman Catholic. And this is, uh, again, it's the purpose of our podcasts on these, to show that you don't have to take those arguments lying down. The best Roman Catholicism to do is the latter part of the fourth century, and we're going to prove that today on relics. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was very good. Uh, just one quick clarification. When, um, and this is just uh, in case uh, people are unfamiliar with Roman Catholicism, when you say, when you're talking about uh, the saints, the the Catholics have a different view of saints than the Protestants. Uh, the The Protestants believe that every believer is ultimately a saint, but the Catholics would, would um, basically limit sainthood to somebody who is very special, who uh, lived an exemplary life and uh, somehow uh, through their through their life earned uh, sainthood. So we're, we're not just talking about anybody who died in the faith. We're talking about uh, people who maybe did something that was exemplary during their lifehood. And um, yes, I mean, yes, yes. yeah. So, that's correct. It's a different meaning of saint. We, you know, we address each other as saints because the scriptures refer to living believers as saints, like the saints right. at Ephesus, for example. Um, but in Roman Catholicism, the, the, the saint is someone who has departed and then after examination is determined to have been exemplary and therefore gets elevated to the status of sainthood or is canonized as a saint. And that's something that's done by a uh, by the by the pope so so yeah right. that's that's when, when we're talking about that they have the they're venerating the relic of a saint they're, uh, they're talking about someone that has been declared to be a saint by roman catholicism okay yeah so, yeah let's let's okay. go okay so so what i want to do is 
typically, as I mentioned earlier, a Roman Catholic will try to prove the antiquity of relic veneration by showing that a long time ago people respected the bodies of the dead. And, and you're going to have to do a lot better than that if you're going to convince me that relic veneration goes back to the age of the apostles and earlier. What, what's missing in the early evidence is people, uh, the priests incensing, are there being any priests who are incensing relics, burning candles before relics, kissing relics, bowing down to relics and kneeling to relics. And, and I want to just read the historical evidence that shows that just those things alone are, are novelties. Let's just first start with incense. Uh, I was uh, I was reading uh, the the story of an, a journalist named Walid Shubat, and it's something uh, people can look him up online. But he talked about how he converted to Roman Catholicism because he did some research and found that the earliest churches from the first century were using incense, which is what Roman Catholics do today. But he must not have done enough <laughs> research because. Even the Catholic Encyclopedia admits they find no evidence of the use of incense until the 5th century. This is the, this is the entry on incense. It says, uh, when exactly incense was introduced into the religious services of the church is not easy to say. During the first four centuries, there's no evidence for its use. The liturgies of Saints James and Mark, which in their present form are not older than the 5th century, refer to its use at the sacred mysteries. So that's the, that's the Catholic Encyclopedia saying, we can't find any evidence of anybody using incense in the first four centuries of Christianity. So we can rule out that the early church was incensing uh, relics. They, they weren't venerating relics by incensing them. Uh, so let's go to burning candles. Uh, Lactantius, and we've talked about Lactantius before, good guy who uh, lived, I think he, he lived before the Council of Nicaea and I think died the year of the Council of Nicaea. And in his Divine Institutes, Book 6, Chapter 2, he ridicules the Romans who burn candles to their gods and says, we have no need to do that, for our God does not need candles. He says, uh-oh. God has no need of their candles, who has himself given so clear and bright a light for the use of man. Um, it is, is that man, therefore, to be brought, to be thought in his senses, who presents the light of candles and torches as an offering to him who is the author and giver of light? So uh, the light he requires from us is of another kind, and that indeed not accompanied by smoke. I mean the light of the mind. So <laughs> so, so in, in one stroke, Lactantius rules out incense and candles saying, hey, we, and you don't find evidence of incense and candles being used in Christian worship until you get to the latter part of the 4th century. And we have Jerome in his letter to Marcella in 385 AD talking about uh, uh, he had been given a gift of wax candles. And he says that reminds us that we should look for the bridegroom's coming with our lights burning. And then in... Uh, in 396 or later, he was criticized. Uh, there, there was a man named Vigilantius who had uh, criticized the use of wax candles to honor the martyrs. 
and uh, Jerome defended that. So he, his defense of that was in 404 AD, but the criticism of it was from uh, about 396 AD. So, so here we have the okay. So we can rule out candles and incense, right? Well, let's uh, the the first recorded instance instance of kissing a relic is from a letter letter 46 from Jerome in 386 AD and he says everywhere we venerate the tombs of the martyrs we apply their holy ashes to our eyes we even touch them if we may with our lips then we shall touch with our lips the word of the cross and rise in prayer and so here this is a, a letter from the latter part of the fourth century showing that they were venerating uh, the relics of martyrs by kissing them and also venerating the wood of the cross by kneeling before it and kissing it but but again this is this is the first recorded instance so we have we have kissing relics we don't find until the latter part of the fourth century incense we can't even find to the fifth wax candles we don't find used in christian worship or to uh, honor uh, martyrs until you get to the latter part of the fourth century and and then uh the first recorded evidence we have for bowing to relics is Cyril of Alexandria, and he lived uh, from 376 to 444 AD. And this is the first case we have of a description of bowing down to the relics. He says, we by no means consider the holy martyrs to be gods, nor are we wont to bow down before them adoringly, but only relatively and reverentially. So he's saying, yes, we do bow down to them, but we're only bowing down to them with reverence. And that's you know let's 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 just be clear here. You're not supposed to bow down to anything. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. the, the commandment in the from the Lord is not don't bow down to something unless you're just uh, showing some relative uh, uh, respect. Uh, he says don't bow down to images at all. And here you have uh, in the latter part of the fourth century and early part of the fifth is they're bowing down to relics, and. And you remember what we said earlier about how in the high mass, the relic is placed on the altar and incensed. Yeah, they get two swings, and, right? And and in one of these, uh, one of the examples we gave, people would kneel before the relic that's exposed on the altar. Well, if you read the Council of Nicaea, Canon, Canon 20, uh, this is from 325 A.D., uh, it says that kneeling was forbidden on Sundays and all uh, on Sundays all year and every day from uh, Passover to uh, to Pentecost <laughs> at the Council of Nicaea. Now that's interesting because here you have if there was a day for saints for Christians to get together and venerate a relic by kneeling to it, it would typically be on a Sunday when the priest is supposed to be conducting the sacrifice of the mass and exposing the relics on the altar for people to venerate, right? I mean, this is what Roman Catholics want us to believe was happening in the early church. And yet the Council of Nicaea, the first uh, ecumenical council of the church, Canon 20, forbids kneeling on Sundays. So how can you possibly say that kneeling before relics, bowing to relics, kissing relics, burning incense and candles before relics is apostolic when all the evidence we have is that those practices were either forbidden in the uh, in the early church or we just simply can't find any evidence that it was ever adopted until the latter part of the fourth century. And it's uh, I, I think it's fascinating 
to hear the, the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia say, hey, this is one of the few where we have evidence for it. And yet the very means that they would prescribe for venerating relic were things that you just can't find any proof for. In fact, sometimes were explicitly forbidden in the early church. So one thing we can say is that as we go through the history of relics, we're going to look at them and say, uh, it's not enough to show that the Israelites carried the body of Joseph back to Hebron. You're going to have to show that they burned incense and candles to it and bowed and kneeled and kissed it. You just don't find that. So what we'll do next, now that we've, we can rule out the means of veneration, because even the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia acknowledges they just can't find evidence for, for doing that. Uh, we're going to move on to the actual uh, treatment of dead bodies going, going all the way back to, uh, to Jacob and Joseph's bones in the Old Testament. But, but do you see, I'll, do you understand where we're going, though, is that if, if you can't find evidence of incense in the early church and you do find the prohibition of kneeling on Sundays, you can be guaranteed that they were not offering incense and kneeling before relics uh, in the Sunday worship service in the early church. This is a novelty from the latter part of the fourth century. It's not apostolic at all. Yeah, and uh, who was it that you said, was it Lactantius? Um, you even identified that uh, some of that was was uh, pagan worship. So, yeah, yes, exactly. I mean, in, in fact, when the, uh, the Vigilantius, who objected to the veneration of relics in the latter part of the 4th century, said that you're just importing pagan practices into the church. He, he, this is how you know, the people who were believers back then who rejected the kneeling before images and the kneeling before uh, uh, burning candles before martyrs and kneeling before and kissing their, uh, their relics, they were... They recognized that something was happening and pagan practices were being imported into the church. And a lot of these pagan practices were imported in the latter part of the fourth century. So. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Okay, okay. So so let's talk about Joseph's bones because uh, Joseph's bones were, uh, and so were Jacob's. Um, Jacob's and Joseph's bones, according to the scriptures, were carried back to, to Israel after the Israelites left Egypt. And this is from... Uh, Acts 7, 15 to 16, it says, So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, uh, and were carried over into Sechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Emor, the father of Sechem. And that's, uh, again, Acts 7, 15 to 16. Then Joshua 24, 32, it says, And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, they buried in Sechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Sechem, for 100 pieces of silver. Okay, so these are two cases where in Scripture we see that the bones were carried back to, uh, to, to Israel, to, to Sechem, the land of Abraham. And the reason that this matters is because in, in Jerome's letter 109, he was arguing against Vigilantius, and Vigilantius was criticizing the veneration of relics. And he reminded people that in the scriptures, the dead, a dead body defiles the people that touch it. So we ought not be kissing it and touching our, our ashes, their ashes to our eyes and that sort of thing. And so Jerome says, hey, wait a second. They carried the bones of Jacob and Joseph back to Israel. Uh, were they defiled? So, so Jerome, in his classic style, is trying to prove that... Uh, hey, you can't criticize us kissing relics and bowing before them because, after all, the Hebrews uh, 
uh, brought Jacob and Joseph's bones back to Israel when they left captivity. But the question is, the question is, what did the Israelites do with Jacob's and Joseph's bones? And according to the scripture, they buried them. And, and this was based on a promise. Uh, a promise was made that they would, J uh, Jacob wanted his bones buried in, uh, in, in Israel, and it was a promise that was made. And, and so they kept that promise, and they carried his bones and Joseph's bones back to Israel and buried them. So they didn't burn candles, they didn't burn incense or kneel before them or kiss them. Uh, they simply carried them back and put them in the ground, put them in a sepulcher. That, that's it. That's not relic veneration. This is what I meant when I said earlier that uh, oftentimes Roman Catholics will take respect for the dead or respect for a promise and read relic veneration into it. So so you, you can't look at uh, Jacob's and Joseph's bones and say, oh, early relic veneration. <laughs> so let's move to the next one, which is Elisha's bones. And you know the story where a man was being buried. And uh, and uh, I'll go ahead and read the passage. It's from 2 Kings 13, 21. It says, And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood upon his feet. So, so Roman Catholics look at that and say, even in the Old Testament, people recognized that the bones of the dead had power. And therefore, relic veneration. <laughs> so, hey, uh, the, the scriptures are clear. You know, a man was uh, touched the bones of Elijah and was revived and stood upon his feet. A dead man was brought back to life. But the question I have is, what had they done with Elijah? What did the Israelites do with Elijah's bones? Did they put them on display? Did they line up and kiss them? Did they burn incense to them or put candles there or kneel before them? No. It says right there in the scripture. He had already been buried. They buried Elisha's bones. They did not expose them for veneration. So no, you can't look at Elisha's bones and say, look, relic veneration. So the next one that Roman Catholics use is, uh, and I read this uh, on a web page uh, saying, uh, this is a Roman Catholic apologetics ministry saying, the veneration of relics in the Catholic Church is an ancient tradition that dates back all the way to the New Testament. We can find its origins in the life of Jesus Christ. Think of the woman who touched Jesus' cloak and was healed. Okay, so here's the passage, Mark 5, 27, 28. When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment, for she said, if I may touch, touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Okay, so no, I... We're not going to grant this to Roman Catholics. Jesus' garment is not a relic, because relic means his remains, and Jesus was not dead. So no, his his garment, his clothing, does not count as his remains. It would only count if they kept it and venerated it. Like they said, wow, Jesus came and saved us from our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to his Father's right hand. And now we're going to venerate the hem of his garment because a woman touched it. There's no that, that never happened, and and the garment doesn't count as remains unless it's from a departed person. And what's interesting is that when she was found out, she did not bow down to the garments, but came and fell down before him. That's what Mark five thirty three said. So no, you don't get the kneeling before the garment. You don't get the kissing the garment. You get a woman coming and bowing down before Christ. So again. 
you look at that and you say, uh, as much as Roman Catholics want to get relic veneration out of a woman touching the hem of Jesus' garment, I'm sorry, you're going to have to do better than that. <laughs> so, uh, so let's move to Stephen's body. Okay, so and, and this one matters to us because, again, uh, when Jerome was arguing against Vigilantius, and Vigilantius was criticizing relic veneration, Jerome invokes the body of Stephen. Uh, he invokes the example. He says, once more I ask, are the relics of the martyrs unclean? If so, why did the apostles allow themselves to walk in that funeral procession before the body, the unclean body of Stephen? Why did they make great lamentation over him that their grief might be turned into our joy. Okay, this is a funeral. <laughs> okay, it's Acts chapter 2, chapter, chapter 8, verse 2, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. I'm sorry, this is not relic veneration. What were they doing with Stephen's body? They were going to bury it. This is a funeral. See how Roman Catholics take simple, <laughs> decent respect for the dead and turn it into, they, they want you to turn this into burning candles, offering incense, kneeling, bowing, kissing uh, dead people's bones. And they simply collected Stephen's body and lamented the fact that this saint had been killed for his faith. And they buried him. That, that's it. That's not relic veneration. Right. So, um, Okay, so now it's important. I want to keep coming back to that, what they did with Elisha's bones and what they did with Joseph's and Jacob's bones and what they did with Stephen's body because it's going to be very, very important when we get into some of the early church fathers and their writings on the martyrs because what Roman Catholics interpret as relic veneration is actually more of the same. It's just a burial. But before we do that, I want to say that if I ever get a chance, I don't, I don't go to Roman Catholic churches, and I don't go to Roman Catholic Mass, and I don't go to their, their relic rooms. But if there ever is a reliquary that is displaying the shadow of Peter, I want to go and see Peter's shadow, because that's an example that Roman Catholics use <laughs> of, of proof of veneration of relics and the significance of relics. And this is from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. It says, if the clothes kerchiefs, and even the very shadows of the saints while yet on earth banish disease and restored health and vigor, who will have the hardihood to deny that God can still work the same wonders with holy ashes, the bones, and other relics of his saints who are in glory? Well, it's a, it's a ridiculous question. The, uh, first of all, I want to say that uh, uh, I do want to see the relic room that's displaying uh, Peter's shadow. I don't know if that would count as a second class or a third class relic because it's not something he used and it's but it, and it's not really something that touched him and yet it's invoked by the catechism of the council of trent as if it was proof that uh, it's okay to bow down and offer incense to bones but um, from acts 15 515 it says in so much as they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches that at the at the least that at least the shadow of peter passing might overshadow some of them. So some of them thought that if Peter's shadow were to pass over them, they would be healed. In Acts 19, 11 to 12, it says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought to the sick handkerchiefs and aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So this is, Roman Catholics are using this as evidence of uh, 
veneration of relics. But again, none of these qualify as remains. Peter and Paul uh, had not left yet. We're not arguing about what God can and cannot do. Nobody ever said God can't heal people with Paul's apron or handkerchief. The scriptures, in fact, simply tell us that God actually used Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons to heal people from their diseases. That, that, that's a true statement. Nobody is saying God can't do this. The question is, when did Roman Catholics start doing this? When did Roman Catholics start venerating the remains of dead people? When did they start digging up bodies and kissing them instead of burying them? And what we find as we go through the history on this, there is an unbroken record of burying dead people until you get to the latter part of the fourth century. And then they start digging them back up again. And that's where relic veneration originates. So, oh, go ahead. You have a question? Yeah, I had a question. Um, can you can you go back to the shadow of Peter and explain? Um, I, I'm not sure I understand that because how would... So, so you said you said if if you had the opportunity to see the shadow of Peter, you, that you would you would take that opportunity. What what are we talking about? Because I don't um, I don't know how you can have a shadow without a body. Right. Um, that's, 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 so is it is it joke. like supposed? Oh, okay. You've got Paul's handkerchief and Peter's shadow on display in our reliquary. Come and see it and venerate it. <laughs> I'd like to see that because you're right. You can't have a shadow without a body. But I, I was that went over my head, and I'm I'm glad because I, that really confused me. I was like, "What is he talking about? How do you, how how does this work?" But okay, go go for it. Yeah. So we have the big toe of Saint Teresa. We have the football. <laughs> we have uh, Peter's shadow. So this this is the this is the this is the extent of nonsense. This is the depths of the nonsense that Roman Catholicism will plumb in order to justify bowing before dead people. Yeah, so, okay. So we've, we've gone through the scriptural examples, and now let's start looking into the early church fathers. And what we find is uh, the first one I want to come to is the martyrdom of Ignatius of Antioch. And Ignatius of Antioch died in Rome about 107 or 108 AD. He was summoned there and went willingly and died in the arena. And... Uh, the, they said that only the harder portions of his holy... Uh, this is, I'm, I'm reading from something called The Martyrdom of Ignatius, and it's uh, from chapter 6. And it says, Only the harder portions of his holy remains were left, which were conveyed to Antioch and wrapped in linen as an inestimable, inestimable treasure left to the Holy Church by the grace which was in the martyr. Okay, so we have 107 AD. Roman Catholics are saying... Uh, Here's evidence, early evidence, of uh, of relic veneration in the early church, and in fact, uh, I was reading from a lady's uh, blog. It's called Catholic by Grace, uh, and her the title of her article is "Venerating Holy Relics." I think I get it now, and she writes and she says, "Unless I think the practice of venerating relics is something out of the Middle Ages." I have only to read a book called The Faith of the Early Fathers by William A. Jurgens, which contains an excerpt describing the martyrdom of St. Ignatius. Okay, so she's describing this exact incident here. So uh, Ignatius of Antioch was killed. 
He was eaten by lions. They collected up just the, whatever the hardest part of his remains, wrapped it in linen, took it back to Antioch. And she says, see, the veneration of relics goes all the way back to the, the, the beginning of the second century. Well, the problem is you read William Jurgens' Faith of the Early Fathers, and he says that the martyrdom of Ignatius, that is the, the account of it that I just read, it is ostensibly an eyewitness accounts, but it has since been found to be a fabrication of the fourth or fifth century. So it's just like when we were talking about the uh, Mary as the Ark of the Covenant or Mary uh, in the Immaculate Conception, Mary in her sinlessness. The evidence that they typically bring forward for the early years, that is the first three centuries, for some reason it always ends up being a fraud or a, a, a fabrication. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> they, they, these are people who are trying to convince us that we should be doing this because it dates to the apostles, and they keep on finding evidence that ends up being fraudulent. And they're willing to keep on bringing forward that fraudulent evidence so that we can come to the truth. And I'm sorry, we're not going to be brought to the truth by fraud. Have they admitted by fabrication? Yeah, have they admitted that it's fraudulent, or do they still pass it around as legit? Well, it, it depends. I think some people, uh, some some people would avoid using the martyrdom of Antioch as evidence of early veneration. But this woman who said that she she now gets relic veneration because she read about the the martyrdom of Ignatius of Antioch in William Jurgen's book, The Faith of the Early Fathers. It says it on that very page that she read it. <laughs> it says it right there. This is found to be a fabrication of the fourth or fifth century. I think that what she does, she still assigns some truth to it. But but more, well, I guess equally importantly, what did the early church do with Ignatius's remains? Let's find out. Did they burn incense? Did they line up and kiss it? Did they burn candles before it? Did they kneel down before it and bow down to it with a profound bow? Well, I'm going to say no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that's a good guess. It's a very good guess. Jerome, in his book, uh, in his uh, "The Lives of Illustrious Men," chapter sixteen, talks about Ignatius, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, and his martyrdom. And here's what he says: He was put to death the eleventh year of Trajan, and the remains of his body lie in Antioch outside the Daphnitic Gate in the cemetery. <laughs> So what did the early church do with Ignatius's remains? They buried them. This is important because so far, what we have found so far is uh, Jacob, Joseph, Elisha, Stephen, and now Ignatius. What did people do with dead bodies back then? Did they put them on altars, burn incense to them, light candles, kneel and bow and kiss them? No. They buried them. And what you don't find in the martyrdom of Ignatius is people running around holding his remains, putting them in relic rooms, and inviting people to come in and bow down before them and burn candles. It just didn't happen. <laughs> so your, your guess yeah. was a very good guess. Okay. Yeah, well, I also, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it, that, was a, that was a gimme. That was an easy one. Okay, um, so... So now let's move to uh, Polycarp of Smyrna, who died in 155 AD, and he's brought forward as evidence of uh, early, uh, early, uh, keep, early practice of keeping relics of the saints and the martyrs in the church 
and then exposing them annually for veneration. Okay, so I'm gonna read from the martyrdom of Polycarp, chapter 18. It says, accordingly, we afterward took up his bones and being more precious than the most exquisite jewels and more purified than gold and deposited them in a fitting place, whither being gathered together as opportunity allowed us with joy and rejoicing, the Lord shall grant us to celebrate the anniversary of his martyrdom, both in memory of those who have already finished their course and for the exercising and preparation of those yet to walk in their steps. Okay, so um, a man named Rod Bennett uh, wrote a book called Four Witnesses, the Early Church in Her Own Words. And in that, uh, in that book and in an interview called The Four Witnesses Brought Me Home, he refers to this incident of the martyrdom of Polycarp. The martyrdom of Polycarp is proof of early relic veneration in the church. And this is what he said. He said, this passage, that is the one we just read from the martyrdom of Polycarp, he says, this passage penned in about AD 155 shows that the practice of keeping saints days, in this case, the anniversary of the martyrdom of Polycarp, dates from the earliest years of Christianity. It would likewise appear from the passage being discussed that the remains or relics of those martyrs were also kept in the churches early on and played some part in these anniversary celebrations. Then later, when he was being interviewed about his book called The Four Witnesses, and the interview is called The Four Witnesses Brought Me Home, he continues and expounds on this a little bit and says, Polycarp was a disciple of St. John the Evangelist himself. And about that time, we can see in the records a feast of the martyrdom of Polycarp being celebrated, complete with the exposition of his relics. So this is Rod Bennett, former Protestant who converted to Roman Catholicism because he examined the evidence from the early church and concluded that they practiced relic veneration early in the life of the church. And he uses Polycarp as the example. Now, the, first off, the uh, I want to say that in the original, and and I did look look up the Greek in this case, uh, the when a martyr died, it was considered his birthday because he had translated from this life to the next, and they actually use that word birthday, so they they don't really call it the saint's day. Or the anniversary of his death they call it his birthday and so what polycarp's disciples did is they said let's gather the remains put them somewhere and let's gather annually to celebrate his birthday and encourage those of us who need to walk in his steps we're still not at relic veneration yet and, and in fact i want to read from the catholic encyclopedia because remember rod bennett concluded that in the early church they kept relics in the churches and exposed them annually for veneration. Now, what Rod Bennett has done is try to make it look like it was the most normal thing in the history of the church as early as the second century for everybody to gather at the church and for them to get out the relics that were being kept there and expose them for veneration. But there is a huge historical problem with Bennett's assessment of the martyrdom of Polycarp. Even the, the Catholic Encyclopedia acknowledges that in Polycarp's day, regular Sunday services were not held in churches, but were held in private houses, not in church buildings. They said the regular Sunday services were held in private houses. 
they didn't have church buildings and they didn't have places, church buildings where they could keep relics. Okay. And then further, when the Catholic Encyclopedia talks about martyrs, it says the anniversary commemoration services of the martyrs were held at the martyrs' tombs. Okay. So what do we have from the Catholic Encyclopedia? They didn't have churches and the anniversary celebrations were held where they were buried. <laughs> okay. So my question to you is, what did Polycarp's disciples do with Polycarp's bones? <laughs> um, they buried them. They buried them. That's yeah. exactly right. And yes, yes, they would gather at the tombs and they would celebrate his birthday. And it's not like they were digging him and up every every year. That's exactly right. What I'm looking for, I'm not looking for respect for the dead. I'm not looking for respect for the memory of the dead. I'm not looking for people carrying bones back from Egypt to Israel. I'm not looking for people in a funeral procession carrying Stephen's body. What I'm looking for is incense and bowing and kneeling and kissing and burning candles before relics that have been dug up. Okay. We still don't have it. We have, all we have is an unbroken record of people burying the dead. What we don't have is relic veneration. That's why I wanted to start with the definition and explain the practice so we could look for the practice in the early church. And guess what we don't find in the early church? Digging up dead people and kissing them. Right. So, and, and to that end, I want to look at, we're now in the third century. This is 260 AD and it's the testimony of Dionysius of Alexandria. It's from his, uh, his epistles and epistolary fragments. And this is epistle one, paragraph three. And it's simply a reference to a guy's occupation. And it says his occupation was to dress out and bury the bodies of those perfected and blessed martyrs. So guess what they were still doing to dead people in the third century? They buried them. They even had people whose job it was to bury them. Okay, so have we gotten to the point yet where we are digging them back up and venerating them? No, we're not. So let's go to the martyrdom of Victor now early in the fourth century. This is 303 AD. Victor had been, been killed. He was a martyr and his uh, as punishment and, and really to, to uh, in order to just discourage his disciples his body was to be left unattended and just to rot but here's here's how the story ended and this is from the passion of saint victor and saint victor or victor died in 303 a.d testifying to the faith he says after permission had been given to bury the martyr the saintly and most blessed bishop maternus went for it and found two beasts one guarding his head and the other guarding his feet the body itself was as it had been left at the very hour of execution. Maternus wrapped the corpse in linen, brought it not far from the little wood, and buried it in peace. Okay? So we're already now in the early 4th century, and what was the early church doing to dead bodies of martyrs? They were burying them. They were burying them. Hey, you're doing great, Tim. You're a really, know, right? really attentive student. So now we're in 360 AD and we're to, uh, this is, um, Athanasius uh, recorded uh, something called the life of Anthony. And this dates to about 360 AD. And something interesting happened to, to Anthony when he was visiting Egypt. And 
the people there were urging him to abide with him, stay there in Egypt to die because he was quite old. And he didn't want to do it. And the reason he didn't want to do it was because of some ungodly, unholy practice that was occurring there. And he didn't want any part of it. But now we're in 360 AD, okay? So it says, when this is reading from Athanasius' uh, Life of Anthony. It says, but when the brethren were urging him to abide with them and there to die, that is in Egypt, he suffered it not for many other reasons, as he showed by keeping silence, and especially for this. The Egyptians are wont to honor with funeral rites and wrap in linen cloth at death the bodies of good men, and especially of holy martyrs, and not to bury them underground, but to place them on couches and to keep them in their houses, thinking that this is to honor the departed. And Anthony often urged the bishops to give commandment to the people on this matter. In like manner, he taught the laity and reproved the women, saying that this thing was neither lawful or holy at all, for the bodies of the patriarchs and prophets are until now preserved in tombs. And the very body of the Lord was laid in a tomb, and a stone was laid upon it and hid it, and hid it until he rose on the third day. And thus saying, he showed that he did that he who did not bury the bodies of the dead after death transgressed the law. And even though they were even though they were sacred, and for this, uh, for uh, for what is greater or more sacred than the body of the Lord, many therefore having heard, henceforth buried the dead underground and gave thanks to the Lord that they had been taught rightly. <laughs> okay, so here oh, late man. in the late in the fourth century, you have some people that are starting to think, hey, we should keep these people as a way to honor them. And Anthony thought that is. Holy, it was, it's unthinkable that we should be doing that. And when he taught them that, they repented and thanked the Lord that they had been properly instructed on what to do with the dead. So we're late in the fourth century, it's 360. And what was the early church doing with martyrs' remains? After, after Anthony found that some of them were preserving them like the pharaohs did with the, the mummies, he said, sorry, that is unlawful, it's unholy, it's profane, and absolutely ridiculous. And you need to stop doing that. You need to bury them, which is the normal thing to do with dead people, with martyrs. So here we are, late in the 4th century, it's three, 360, and Anthony is saying that the practice of the church has always been to bury dead people, and that it's absolutely wrong to be keeping them above ground. So, so let's summarize. What do they do with Jacob's and Joseph's bones? They buried them. What do they do with Elisha's body? They buried it. What do they do with Stephen's body? They buried it. What do they do with Ignatius' remains? They buried him. What do they do with Polycarp's remains? They buried him. What did Dionysus say they did with uh, with martyrs' bodies? Well, they had people whose job it was to bury him. What do they do with Victor's body? They buried it. What did Anthony find so offensive about what the Egyptian Christians were doing with martyrs' bodies? Well, they weren't burying them. So, so the bigger question is in all this, in all that we've read so far, Where's the incense? Where's the bowing, the kneeling, the burning of candles and the kissing? The answer is it's found nowhere in the early church at all. What was typically done was to bury the remains. To actually find the incensing and the bowing and the kneeling and the kissing and the burning of candles, you have to wait to the latter part of the fourth century. And that's why I showed at the beginning is that you just don't find evidence for that until you get to the end of the end of the fourth century. And and what I want you to notice though is how quickly Roman Catholics will make will try to make Roman uh, Catholic relic veneration occur earlier than it really did. And an example is from Father William Saunders in his uh, his article Why do we venerate relics? He said essentially 
relics, that is the bones and other remains of, uh, of St. Polycarp were buried and the tomb itself was the reliquary. Well, <laughs> that's a really nice try at trying to show early relic veneration, but it's simply an acknowledgement that Polycarp's bones were buried. Now, unable to make a clear case for actual veneration of relics, uh, Father Saunders then proceeds into the early fourth century, and he says that the actual extracting bones from the ground, this is what I've been looking for this whole time, right? I've been trying to find actual relic veneration. I want to know when we start digging bodies back up again. And Saunders says that the evidence for that is from 312 AD, early in the fourth century. He says, after the legalization of the church in 312, the tombs of the saints were opened and actual relics were venerated by the faithful. A bone or other bodily part was placed in a reliquary, a box, a locket, and later a piece, a glass case for veneration. So there you go. Well, the, the, he finally found evidence for relic veneration in the early church. He found it in early 4th century in 312 AD. The problem is, that he says that it's after the legalization of the church in 312 AD, and he's right. It's 50 years after <laughs> the legalization of the church. We don't actually find evidence in history for the actually exhuming dead people for veneration until 354 AD, and it was first done by Caesar Constantius Gallus. The earliest known case of a martyr's bones being disinterred and moved to another location for veneration is the translation of the bones of St. Babylus of Antioch. It was done in 354 AD. Two years later, Emperor Constantius II uh, translated the bones of Timothy in 356 AD, or allegedly St. Timothy in 356 AD, the bones of St. Andrew and Luke in 358 AD. It was only after this that the church started to embrace the practice. And then the earliest reference we can find to the faithful, the faithful, I'm putting that in parentheses, collecting the relics of martyrs for personal veneration, as Saunders described it, is a letter from Basil in 373 AD. Send the relics of the martyrs home, you will do well. That's a full six decades after 312. But notice how, first, how William, uh, Father William Saunders tried to pass off burying Polycarp as relic veneration, and then tried to say that after the legalization of the church in 312 is when relic veneration, relics started being extracted for veneration. You, you search the history books, you don't find anybody digging up dead people to kiss them and rub their ashes on their face or bow before them or light candles or burn incense to them till after, until the latter part of the fourth century. In reality, the practice of venerating relics the way that was described in the article we, we read at the beginning of the podcast, it proliferated under Pope Damasus I, who reigned from 366 to 384 AD, late in the, first, late in the fourth century. And he did, uh, according to uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia, said he did much to encourage the veneration of the Christian martyrs and uh, the, the restoring and creating access to their tombs in the catacombs of Rome and elsewhere took place under his administration. Now, notice that uh, William Saunders tried to make this in 312, but really the restoring of the catacombs and making them accessible so people could get in and start getting the bones doesn't happen until Pope Damasus in the uh, latter part of the fourth century. So uh, just like the sacrifice of the mass that we did in that series, just like all the uh, veneration of Mary, you just don't get Roman Catholicism until you get to the latter part of the fourth century. And the same is true 
with relics. Everything up until the latter part of the fourth century, all they did was bury the dead. And Roman Catholics tried to pass off respect for the dead as relic veneration. But what is missing in all those stories is either dead people, as in the case of Jesus' garment or Paul's handkerchief or Peter's shadow, or incense and bowing and kneeling and kissing and burning candles. That's what's missing. What's missing in the first What's missing in the first 300 years of Christianity is any evidence at all that they venerated relics. And everything else is just trying to stretch the evidence to make it fit to what, what is done now. And so, as, I, as I've said often, is that uh, Roman Catholics want us to join them in their relic veneration. And I tell them, I cannot depart the apostolic faith and join you in your late fourth century novelties. So I'm going to stick with the uh, religion that Christ started, with the church that Christ started. I'm not going to join Roman Catholicism in the late 4th century novelties. And that's all they are. Amen. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me um, – okay, so two questions. Well, actually, one's, one's more of a comment. I think that it's very significant to note that um, this came about 50 years after the legalization of the church because – you see, like if if you if you go back and you read um, what what happened when the church was finally legalized as the state religion, you see that a lot of people joined the church uh, for political means, for political gain, and that's when the church became very very polluted, if you will, with a mixing of Christianity with paganism, um, and. So I think that's that's very significant because that that really is what I think is taking place here, and um, I think uh, going back it was you said it was like like Tantius I, I might be wrong on that but uh, who identified this as uh, as paganism and said that that's what the Romans did so yes, that was that was like Tantius and yeah yes in the late fourth century that was like Tantius. Um, before Nicaea, saying burning candles uh, is a pagan thing. We don't do that. And the right. vigilante said that the relic veneration he was seeing was actually secretly importing pagan practices into the church. But right. what happened in 312 was that there was an edict of persecution that was uh, to kill Christians, and that was lifted in 313. And that was uh, uh, th that's just when Christianity became tolerated it didn't actually become it, it's not until the latter part of the fourth century that you actually start seeing the emperors uh enforcing it as the religion of the state and it doesn't officially become the religion of the state until about 382 mm, okay with uh so that's when it became the state religion and but, but my, my point in highlighting uh father william saunders and he says yeah after 312 ad and it became legalized they started actually going through the, the tombs and getting their bones well, no, they didn't actually. <laughs> that didn't start happening until the, the first recorded case was 354. And what's interesting is that the emperors started doing it, and then the church followed suit. And uh, I'm sorry, the Roman emperors is simply not where we get our practices and our form of worship. Yeah. Well, and then the question that I had was, I, I guess they believe that these relics have certain powers. Would that be correct to... So it's not just that they're that they're venerating them and, and kissing them and bowing down to them, but they actually believe that these relics 
have powers. So I, I suppose, you know, that maybe if you touch the relic of a, of a dead person or kiss it, that you might be healed in the same way that the woman was healed when she touched Jesus's uh, uh, garment. Um, is that, is that an accurate thing to say that they still believe that? Oh, yes. Yes. That, that, in fact, that's what the, uh, when I was reading earlier from the Catholic, um, from the council of Trent that, yeah, you, it's wrong to deny According to them, it's wrong to deny that you visit the saints in order to receive some benefit from them, uh, visit the uh, the relics to receive some benefit from them. So they look at uh, the woman touching the hem of the garment, people touching Paul's handkerchief, or the dead man being revived by the bones of Elisha, and they say, see, relics. And and it's proof that uh, that we should venerate relics, but what's missing yeah i'll grant in the scriptures yeah that's exactly right that's what the scriptures say is that people were healed by paul's handkerchief and the man was revived by touching elijah's bones none of that brings us to a point where we're supposed to put uh dig up dead people <laughs> right and so it, for, just don't get to dead digging up dead people yeah from that well and so it's a it's a sin um they would they would believe that this is a sin if you don't accept this or if you don't do this right did it um i'm trying to look up uh because i thought i thought you'd mentioned something about it be, being an um, unpardonable sin is was that correct or did i just misunderstand i'm sorry i missed well, the word there what was the uh what was the question? i thought i i thought i heard you say something about it being an unpardonable sin if you uh, if you don't accept this or if you reject this or well uh, I don't know that they would say it's unpardonable I just say that it's a sin and the church okay. condemns them so oh he condemns them okay yes yeah. that that's the word that uh that uh, caught my attention so what does that mean like because uh, because I, I you know if, if Roman Catholics are, are listening to this uh, um, or even if, if somebody's on the fence I, I want to point that out that Okay, so here's here's what I'm I'm trying to get to. Oftentimes we hear Roman Catholics when when we put their feet to the fire and when we we show them this stuff, they'll say they'll they'll back off and they'll say, well, you know, I don't I don't really believe in that. I don't really, uh, you know, I don't really accept that part of it. And so I wanted to go back to that and and just clarify the church does condemn you for rejecting this is that is that an accurate thing yes that's exactly right in fact that's that's exactly what the council in trent was saying is that right it's not just saying that you ought to visit the bodies of the holy martyrs and to venerate them but if you deny that you should venerate them with the purpose of getting their aid then you are wholly condemned w-h-o-l-l-y you are holy to be condemned Right. And the church has already long since condemned you and now condemned you. So, you know, as people say, well, I don't do the relic thing. It's like, okay, you're not Catholic anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> so and, and yeah. And, and I really want to capitalize on that. So if you're a Roman Catholic or if you are somebody who knows Roman Catholics and, and you want to flippantly dismiss this and say, well, you know, I don't do that. Uh, just know that under the system, which you are currently in, you would be condemned by that system. And so my encouragement to to all uh, who are 
um, currently held captive by that system, I, I would say come out of it. Um, you know, be saved uh, by faith, through faith alone, uh, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Uh, because the church, so, so the ultimatum is this, either you're, you're fully on board with this, and as we've already, as, as Brother Tim showed, it's a, it's a novelty of the 4th century, of the late 4th century. Uh, it has no apostolic tradition. Uh, this, it, it's not something that the early saints, uh, the, the actual saints, the, the true church took part in. It's not something that they did. It's not something that we should do. So I really want to capitalize on that because your church condemns you if you reject this. And we're basically making a case that you should reject it. So, um, Brother Tim, I want to thank you for, for coming on today. I think this is going to be an excellent episode. And we are laying the groundwork for eschatology. And um, if if our listeners have caught on, we keep pointing back to something took place in the fourth century, in the latter part of the fourth century. Uh, there, there was a change that, that occurred in the latter part of the fourth century. And so uh, I hope that, that, uh, that entices some people to, to continue listening to Semper Reformanda Radio because we are going to be uh, tackling some other issues with, uh, with, Tim Kaufman regarding um, Roman Catholicism and the novelties of the late fourth century. And then we are going to pick up a series on eschatology and talk about uh, where, where all of this fits into an eschatological uh, framework. So Tim, before we go, is there anything else that you would want to add or say? No, just uh, the, uh, there were, just so people know that there were people who rejected this practice. There were people that rejected the veneration of the cross. There were people that rejected the veneration of relics. There were people that rejected the uh, the impartu virginity of Mary, as we talked about in our, our previous series. There are people that rejected her immaculate, uh, sorry, people that rejected her sinlessness. And so over, and there are people that rejected priestly celibacy. So uh, we can talk about priestly celibacy sometime and, and, and when that originated. And what we find consistently is that we're showing that all these new novelties, uh, I guess that's redundant to say that all these novelties originated in the latter part of the fourth century. But Roman Catholics will say, well, where was the outcry? You know, there should have been, the, the true church should have stood up, the church should have rejected this. And what we find is that sure enough, you find some very faithful people saying uh, something's wrong with these novelties that are erupting around every corner and they're calling them novelties and they're calling them inventions and they're calling them importing pagan practices into the church. So yes, sure enough, there were people who said, sorry, but you're going to have to show from the scriptures and we're just not seeing it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, all right. Uh, with that, we will go ahead and end today's episode. Uh, I want to remind everybody that you can reach us at semper.reformanda.radio at gmail.com. Um, and we look forward to hearing from our listeners. And um, I hope everybody has a blessed week. If you're listening to this and you have a friend who's a Roman Catholic, uh, you know, listen to this and, and consider how you might reach out to them because our desire is to 
reach Roman Catholics uh, with the truth, uh, with the gospel. So that's our reason for doing this. And um, we just thank you for joining us. Uh, God bless, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.